All right, y'all. Do you remember the first time you hid? And I don't mean hide and seek hide. I mean the first time you did something and you didn't want anyone to find out about it. I remember my first time. Um, I was in fourth grade, and Mr. Cutler, my teacher, had assigned us biographies. My biography was on Molly Pitcher. Molly Pitcher, um, she delivered water out onto the battlefield to the soldiers. And of course, you know, this assignment came about a week or two before it was due. It was due on a Monday. And of course, on Sunday, I hadn't started it yet. And um, that particular Sunday, we, we came into the city to see a Broadway show. And so that meant that I didn't have the time to get it done. And so sure enough, we get home that night. It's late. My mom is like, you need to hurry up, get ready for bed, go right to bed, because it was a school night. And so, of course, I am in the bathroom, like huddled over on the counter, like I'm scribbling out these sentences about Molly Pitcher. And then I'm trying to draw a picture because you know you needed a picture to go with everything you wrote back then. And I'm trying to scribble all that out. And that was my first memory of hiding. I just, I remember like even at that age, I did not want anyone to know that I had dropped the ball. And so if you think about your own memories, perhaps that was you hiding your report card. Maybe you hid the fact that you got detention or you hid secrets in a diary or maybe you hid those late night phone calls that you were on so nobody would know. And we think that as we get older, as we evolve, that we don't hide anymore. We no longer have to hide. But the truth is, is that we still do it. I mean, think about this. We hide food. We don't want anyone to see that we've got the food, so we hide it. I hide food from my kids all the time. Some of you hide the purchases you've made because you weren't supposed to make them. I mean, I know Jordan's got like one or two pairs of Nikes in his closet that Jess hasn't seen yet. <laughs> so we hide. And in fact, up until um, Friday, I had spent a month hiding the fact that I broke my husband's Beats headphones. And the only reason I told him was because I was going to talk about it on today's message. <laughs> I mean, isn't it funny the way that, like, the Lord reveals truth? But that's another sermon for another day. I'll save that. But the point is, I did not want Rob to know that I once again broke something of his. There's a connection between our failures, between our mistakes, between, between our shortcomings, and the fact that we hide. The reality is, hiding is a human condition that goes back all the way to Adam and Eve. And we're gonna see that in the creation account of scripture, there's a, a section in Genesis that talks about this very thing. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to, walk, to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
And what do they do, you ask? Well, in Genesis 3, 6 through 8, we find out. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Y'all see what they did? They ate the fruit. They ate the fruit and they hid. There's that connection between mistakes and failures and sins and those things we think are ugly uh, that we would just rather hide. And the reason why we hide is because in the garden, at the dawn of sin, in that moment, the first emotion Adam and Eve experienced was shame. And we could look at ourselves and see the same thing. We hide in shame. Now, we can even just take a moment and think, all of us who are on Zoom, we won't even turn our cameras on. <laughs> Some of us hide in our work, though, more seriously. Some of us hide at the bottom of a bottle of wine. Some of us quite literally hide. We all know, or perhaps you're at home watching, right now you haven't been to church in a while because you're afraid of being discovered. Like there's a heathen search party ready for you to reveal what you're ashamed of. You won't even answer the phone when a loved one calls because you might have to tell them what's up. Some of us flake on plans. We know when you cancel right at the last minute. We can't Stand the thought of being around other people. But let's be honest, it's not because we don't want to see other people. What we're going to look at today is the fact that we are hardwired for connection. The truth is, it's because we don't want other people to see us. And we see that back in Genesis with Adam in verse 10, where he says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. When you get another job rejection, when another relationship has failed, the other time you've melted down on your kids again, when you're still struggling to make ends meet financially, more of the same sin over and over. We just don't want people to know that we're struggling to keep it together and that things aren't going well. And so what do we do? We hide. So God's going to get all up in our hearts today. That is my prayer for all of us right now. And we're going to talk about what happens when we hide shame. And we're going to talk about grace. So I want us to define those two things first. Shame is the insidious 
feeling that tells us that we are unworthy of connection as the result of what we ourselves have done or what has been done to us by others. And grace, that is God's response to our shame. It is his free and unmerited love, his mercy and his favor given to the undeserving. And I also want us to name a couple of things. Because I said we need to understand what's going on with shame. Because shame is hard. It wreaks havoc and causes total destruction in our lives. Some researchers call it the master emotion. It is so effective in its goal to separate us from love and from truth. It separates us from the truth of who we are and how others see us. And it separates us from love because it convinces us that we are unworthy of belonging. And when it is effective, it takes hold of us and it has the power to hold such a tight grip on us that by ourselves, we are unable to break free from. But here is the point. We are going to get something straight about God. We're going to get something straight about shame and about grace because we keep putting really low expectations on God. We think God's going to act the way we do or the way that other people do. Like, could you imagine God responding to our sin by shaming us, by leaving us out? The point is God responds to shame with grace. And he literally left us a whole book about this. The entire Bible is about God reconnecting us to him when we sin. So let's go back and see an example of this. Let's look at this uh, in Genesis uh, with some new eyes. So it's clear. God responds to sin. He must. He despises it. And as a result, Adam and Eve are sent away from the garden. And there's something else equally or even more important that happens in this moment of Adam and Eve's shame. Let's take a look at Genesis 3, 8, and 9. So what's happening is the man and the wife, remember, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay, so what's happening here? From the moment shame enters the world, God swoops in with a quickness to counter it with grace. You know, in that moment, Adam and Eve can't cover themselves quickly. Like, they're like, oh, I'm naked. I need trees. I need fig leaves. I got to cover myself all up. But what God does is this, he goes to them. And what does he say when he goes to them? He says, where are you? Who told you you were naked? What have you done? He's asking them questions. 
Now, remember I said we need to get some things straight about God. Because some of us think, like, well, these questions come when I asked my kids questions or when I was a kid and somebody asked me questions. It was to call out the fact that I had done wrong and I'm about to be shamed. But here's the thing. One, God doesn't ask questions that he does not know the answer to. These questions he asks are grace, unmerited love. He's saying, tell me what happened. I want to hear from you. And he makes himself available to listen to what they have to say. And then we see another example of God's grace in this story of the fall. In Genesis 3:21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So God not only meets them in the moment of their sin and shame, but he covers the shame with grace. He takes it away so they are no longer naked. He gave those garments freely when in a moment we could all agree they were completely undeserving of anything from God. And even in the midst of their shame, God shows he loves them. And so this scripture in Genesis where the Lord makes garments out of skin for Adam and Eve, it it points to something greater too. It sets the stage for the coming of Jesus, the sinless lamb whose blood covers our sin. Because the beauty of the gospel is that it is for us undeserving people. Romans 5, 6 through 7 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So right there in that moment is the whole point. While we were still sinners in the midst of sin, in the midst of shame, not after you cleaned yourself up, not after you decide, oh, well, that was a mistake. Let me get myself together. Then that's when God comes to you. No, just like God covers Adam and Eve with the garments of skin in their moment of sin. That's the same way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and covered us with his own body. And my hope for today is that God himself would speak to each and every one of us to let us know we do not have to hide our sin or hide in shame, afraid of his condemnation. That's not how he functions. He does respond to our shame, and he, he does it, you know, whether the shame was put upon us or the shame that comes about by our own actions, he responds whatever kind of shame we are, experience, we are experiencing, he responds with grace. In fact, God's grace is the thing that removes our shame. It is the only thing that can. And we're going to see, like I said, the whole Bible is about God reconnecting with us and responding to our sin with grace. And I want to show us another example of where he does this. It's one of my favorite stories in Genesis 28. And it's an illustration of how God responds to people on the run in hiding. 
Let's take a look at Genesis 28, verses 10 through 15. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to do. Now, this is one of, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful moments between God and man and particularly Jacob here. You see, God promises Jacob to bless him. And if this is all you know about the story of Jacob, then it's not unusual. God is blessing his people. God is in the business of blessing. It's what he does. However, we're going to take a look back to see that what led to this moment. And we're going to see this is the aftermath of a family's harmful decisions and the hiding out that comes along when we make bad decisions. In this story, a man sins, he runs away in hiding, and then there are effects of what happens when you do that. But regardless of his choices, God comes to him. So first, understand that in the ancient Jewish culture, the economy wasn't like ours. In order to acquire wealth, you needed to inherit it. Back then, the oldest son was the one to acquire the majority of the estate. And so if there were two kids, like Jacob and his brother in this case, the estate would be divided into three, and then the oldest brother would get the um, two-thirds of the estate, and the youngest brother would get one-third. And until that point, the father owned all of it. So, if you were the oldest son and you knew your father was getting ready to die, then you were expecting to get the inheritance. And in this particular case, in Jacob's family, this was going to be about a million, like, this is like millions of dollars. Like, he was very wealthy. Now, Jacob and his mother had a plan to make sure Jacob, Jacob was the youngest brother, by the way, he, they made a plan to make sure that he got the inheritance. And so at this point, his father is older, his mental health is declining, and they figured out a way to trick the father into giving Jacob the blessing. And at, at this point, the blessing that is stated is legally binding. In that moment, what you say cannot be undone. So Jacob, he's a trickster, and he dresses up in a hairy costume that makes him look like his older brother. And once his older brother figured out what happened, he was furious, of course. He, and he says he's going to kill his brother Jacob. So Jacob ran and hid. 
Now, we might be tempted to be like, oh, that's one of those Bible stories, one of them ancient Bible stories. That has nothing to do with me. But I encourage us to see ourselves in that because have we not at some point made bad decisions out of frustration and fear? Do we not put ourselves to make, put ourselves first to make sure that what happens is in our own best interest? We say whatever needs to be said, we do whatever needs to be done because we're human. Out of desperation, we compromise our hearts to replace loneliness. We lie. We say mean things, maybe to someone's face. Maybe you're the one that hides behind your keyboard on Instagram to say mean things. We withhold love. We withhold truth. And so we find ourselves, like Jacob, dealing with the aftermath of our choices. One scholar says, in our shame, we hide from others and we hide from ourselves. Ultimately, we hide from God. And in our hiding, we choose darkness over light. We embrace death instead of life. And we elect to be lonely rather than to be relationally at home with others. But praise God that God is not us. For God, this attitude that we have as humans, this will not do for him. He will not let us go out like that and be alone. And so we get to see in this story just how God responds to Jacob's sins. So in verse 12, I shared he had a dream, and it says he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The key here is that this is not a stairway to heaven, but a stairway from heaven. God makes a way to come down himself and meet Jacob right where he is. And some might argue, by the way, that Jacob is like not even, hasn't even confessed anything, like he doesn't even know he should be shameful, but it doesn't matter. And that's true for some of us. We're not sure we're supposed to confess yet or say that we've done something wrong yet. Doesn't matter, God comes down anyway. And the reason why that is is because there's nothing we can do to earn grace. We're not required to do anything to reach God. God takes care of it all. And in grace, God sends Jesus. He built a way from heaven to come down to us. And Jesus speaks on this himself in John 1:51. He says, "Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man, on the son of man. It is Jesus who is the way, the connection between God and us." And then, if you're struggling to believe, like we so struggle with that God loves us in the midst of shame. Because I said before, right, we look at that story of Jacob, we think it doesn't apply to us at all. Maybe our sin is greater. Maybe we don't count. Maybe that story is not meant for us, but it absolutely is. Listen to what God says to Jacob. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
Jacob has sinned greatly in a number of different ways. It's like we sin greatly in a number of different ways. But in response to those self-inflicted consequences that Jacob is dealing with, God does two things for Jacob. And he does two things for us when we sin and hide away in shame. And I want us to hold on to that this week. One, God initiates. He takes the first step to Jacob. He doesn't wait for Jacob to get it right on his own. He's already there meeting him in the moment of sin and shame. And two, God's goal is to restore him, not to condemn him. He's not pushing him away further. He's saying, come closer to me. And God does the same thing for us. Why? What had Jacob done to deserve this honor? What do we do to get all this love and grace from God? What was there in him to merit this wondrous privilege? As A.W. Pink says, nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was God in grace which now met him for the first time and here gave to him his seed, the land whereon he lay. Such is ever God's way. He pleases to choose the foolish and vile things of this world. He selects those who have nothing and he gives us everything. He singles out those who deserve nothing but judgment and bestows on us nothing but blessing. This is where we commit to understanding and letting God work in us the way that he does. This is where we decide once and for all that God is not us, that he is not human, and that our low expectations do not meet him where he is. We do not understand him. But here is where we decide that we accept God's love and grace because God is a God that meets our shame with grace. So there are four things that I want us to take this week when, because when they happen, when we encounter this master emotion of shame, there are four things I want us to do. Number one is to own and name our feelings. When is the last time you were just like, I feel angry? I feel shame, I feel pain, I feel anger. Sometimes we misconstrue our identities as Christians to mean that any acknowledgement of pain, anger, frustration, unhappiness, difficulty means that we have a lack of faith. And I'm so guilty of this. Uh, those of you who uh, are close to me, I mean, I say this all the time, so anybody might hear me say at one point, and you ask me, how you doing, Amber? When I say, I'm blessed and highly favored, it means I'm having a terrible day. <laughs> I encourage us all to shift 
this idea that owning our feelings is a lack of faith to what it actually is. It is a demonstration of faith. And Paul agrees. This is where I got it from. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, 11, Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I have to give this disclaimer here because we, reread, we misread the scripture sometimes, right? We think that it means I'm supposed to enjoy pain. I'm supposed to enjoy suffering. That being Christian means being happy all the time. But that's not what this is saying. What Paul is saying here is that by naming and owning and recognizing that these uncomfortable moments that are true in our lives, we're saying God is here. We don't need to hide because we can face it because God is the answer. He's with us. Sometimes we, you know, we push things away because we don't feel like there's an answer or we don't feel like we can deal with it. But when we own and name our feelings, we're saying, this can be dealt with, with God. Which is why the second point that I encourage us to take on this week is to bring these things to God in prayer. And why not? Like, why do we struggle to do this? Remember I went back before we said, God already knows. Like, he already knows what's going on in your heart. So we can get in our feelings with God. He wants us to. He wants you to bring it to him. And, and it's so important that we, that we do so honestly. Can we say in our prayers this week, I am scared. I am lonely. I am failing. God, I'm hurt. God, I'm angry. God, I'm embarrassed. God, I did that. I'm guilty. God, I said a hurtful thing. I dropped the ball again. I drank too much again. I slept in somebody else's bed again. I yelled at my kids again. God. Because when we don't, we experience tension in our bodies. You know you can't sleep. You know your head hurts. You know you can't focus, that you can't be present. It is in prayer that we experience relief. Psalm 32 says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. God is your hiding place. And three, confess your sin to those you trust. Don't stop at just bringing your shame to God. Remember, we are hardwired for connection. Things work when we are connected to each other. James 5.16, we are told to confess our sin to one another so that we can be healed. The truth is, shame is like mold. 
Mold loves the dark, and it grows there until uh, it takes over every crevice. And the only thing that can stop it is light. Brene Brown, in her book, Dare to Lead, calls this practicing shame resilience. She says, shame derives its power from being unspeakable. That's why it loves perfectionists. It's so easy to keep us quiet, right? But if we name shame and speak out what it seeks to keep hidden, we basically cut it off at the knees. Shame hates having words wrapped around it. If we speak shame, it begins to wither. Language and story bring light to shame and destroy it. And why is that? because we have to bring the thoughts that take over the darkest places of our mind. You know those thoughts that make us scared, that begin to blame ourselves, that disconnect us. We need to bring those to light through connection because when we do that, then we can have others remind us of the truth, the truth that we do belong, the truth that we are not alone. If you think about a time yourself that you've shared something, that you've mustered up the courage to be really vulnerable and admit something about yourself you didn't love, to someone you trust, you heard, I'm sorry. You heard, I love you. You heard, me too. All of those things that remind us that we belong and that we are indeed connected. And let me just make it clear that I am not saying go ahead and write a long Instagram post about the shame you are currently experiencing, nor does it mean that everyone gets to hear your shame. We're human, and not everybody in your life is ready to receive it from you. So who are your people? Who are your, I can say this to you because you still love me, you still accept me, you still know me, you won't judge me, people. You may have those people in your life, and if you need some, next week you'll receive an email about community groups. We encourage you to sign up immediately. Community groups at Renaissance are this opportunity to fellowship, to eat together, to connect, to pray, to read the word together and talk about what it is doing for you in your life and what it means. In community groups over the, the past years that I've been involved, my group has held my shame about how I'm really hard on my daughters. They've held the shame of the number of jobs that I did not get that I applied for and helped me just to understand and feel connected. The fourth thing that I want us to do this week is to practice offering grace to people you might shame. Now, I know this is really hard for us, right? We're the first people. We cancel each other, we ghost each other, we shame each other. But let us ask ourselves, what would Jesus do the next time we want to shame someone? Could we get near to that person so they know they're not alone? 
Could we ask, what's happening? What happened? Remember, God has designed this whole experience for us to connect, to reconnect to him and to each other. Things work when we are connected. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, there's a moment where Jesus is sending his disciples out to go bring in believers. And he's sending them. He tells, him, um, he tells his disciples to heal the sick, drive out demons. He's telling them, go get the people who need Jesus. Now, you could think about the people in your life. You're like, ooh, she needs Jesus. Those are the people that he is telling them to go and get. And in that moment, though, the last thing he reminds them is this. Freely you have received. Freely give. thing is, this is hard for us, right? Because we cannot give what we do not believe we have. We can't give grace if we don't think we have grace. So let the grace you shared this week be a practice of accepting the grace that God has offered you. In a lot of ways, no matter how much we think we're hiding in shame, Scripture shows us time and again that God moves in closer to us in those moments. He does not respond with condemnation, nor rejection, nor abandonment, but with grace. Think about it. That moment in the garden, God could have turned his back on Adam and Eve. He ultimately would have turned his back on all of us. Jacob, he could have left him laying on that rock, sleeping alone in the night all by himself with his thoughts. But it was in those moments and so many other moments that God goes into action to restore us, to reconnect with us. And he doesn't stop in those moments, right? In the greatest act of grace ever known, God met the darkness of humanity's sin and shame with the light of his son, Jesus. And while we were still sinners, he came down, he became man, and he shed his blood so that we would be reconnected with God, our Father, once and for all. There is no need to hide in shame. Look for God. Seek God. He is already there offering his grace. Accept it. Let's pray. Dear God, wow. When we take a step back and take in how much you love us, how you have done everything to reconnect with us, to offer us grace, to bring us back and restore us to you, Lord, it's awesome. God, help us to remind, to remember that you are not us. That you are not thwarted by sin, Lord. 
that you have overcome it and that we are covered in our sin and shame by your grace. And even in those moments where we are not yet ready to admit, you are already there. God, stay on our hearts this week. Then when we might be tempted to hide, Lord, that we would come forth into the light towards you, that we would say to ourselves, Lord, the truth, that we would admit the truth to you, that we would admit the truth to our loved ones. We don't have to hide, Father. And I pray that every single person here would just live in the light of your love. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.